Welcome, everyone. You're tuning in to the Beyond the Pulse podcast, brought to you by the expert doctors at My Cardiologist, where we discuss a wide range of topics related to cardiovascular wellness and provide you with the knowledge, motivation, tips, and tools to help you make informed choices about your heart health. My Cardiologist is proud to be a leading provider of comprehensive cardiovascular care, serving the South Florida community for over 60 years. And we're thrilled to extend our care beyond the clinic through this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hi, my name is Dr. Jonathan Greenblatt, and I'm a board-certified non-invasive cardiologist. I just moved here from New Hampshire, where I was practicing for about 12 years. And prior to that, I was in New York, New York City specifically, uh, where I practiced for about 10 years. Um, And my focus is on uh, practice of non-invasive cardiology, which means preventative cardiology, as well as consultations for people who have concerns about their heart, uh, the focus of my practice is taking care of patients with uh, known cardiovascular disease as well as um, people interested in their risk for heart disease. Um, I specialize in cardiovascular imaging, such as echocardiography or cardiac ultrasound, uh, nuclear imaging cardiology, um, stress testing, and uh, cardiovascular risk prevention. We're going to get into it and start talking about maintaining a healthy lifestyle. Uh, one of the things that most patients ask me about is what can I do to keep a healthier diet? I see that they come into my office and they have a presumption of what a healthy diet is. And then once we start getting into it, they'll start saying things like, oh, I eat a lot of you know meat or I eat a lot of fried things. And you're just like, that's not healthy. <laughs> exactly. I hear that as well. I also hear a common complaint by patients that um, they uh, think that they're eating a healthy diet, but they have difficulty losing weight. So the first uh, priority in terms of a healthful diet is avoiding foods that are not healthy for you. And those are specifically high-fat foods. And and within the high-fat category, we're talking about saturated fats, partially hydrogenated oils, and trans fats. So those should all be avoided. When it comes to eating meat or poultry, lean red meat should be um, consumed as opposed to heavily fatty um, red meat, such as uh, ribeye steak and so forth. Um, if someone consumes poultry, they should avoid eating the skin on, on the poultry. And obviously, um, everyone knows that fish is healthy. Certain fish are healthier. Those that contain large amounts of omega-3 fish oil should be consumed. And examples of that would be salmon, sardines, tuna. Um, with regard to um, additional foods that should be avoided, uh we, we call them uh, white starches, so uh, white potatoes, white rice, unfortunately, because that's one of my favorites. <laughs> Whole grains should be the goal in terms of consumption of, uh, in, when people think of eating grains. So whole wheat bread, obviously healthier than white bread. What do you, what's your opinion on artificial sweeteners? Because you see a lot of people who drink coffee and they want to put a lot of Splenda or artificial sweeteners in there. Do you think that's healthier than adding regular sugar or brown sugar? That's a very good question. Um, I personally uh, came off of um, sugar about six years ago when my wife told me that the amount of sugar I put in my coffee was unhealthy. Uh, So I got used to drinking coffee without sugar, and and I think everybody can do that. Um, I'm I'm not so much for the artificial sweeteners. There's some data that came out recently about some of the artificial sweeteners that um, show that it could be risky. Um, in terms of long overall long-term events. 
Um, yeah, so I would favor natural sugars if you're going to add sugar to your coffee, but, but the best thing to do is to avoid sugaring your coffee altogether. And then with regard to uh, sweets in general, I had a friend who was an endocrinologist in New York and also a nutrition specialist, and he used to always say, don't drink your calories. And by that, he meant sugary sodas, specifically you know the Coca-Cola types, the Fantas, Pepsi, and also alcohol, unfortunately, because some people will have a drink or two daily and they don't realize how many calories are in that alcoholic beverage. Right, right. And how do you feel about those um, sort of diets that are going around that are really popular, like the ketogenic diets or the intermittent fasting that's going around? Mm-hmm. What, what is your opinion about that? My, my personal opinion is that I'm not a fan of those diets. I, I'm, I'm uh, more, uh, I, I favor the, the South Beach diet. Um, I've tried it myself. The first uh, two weeks or so where there's a restriction of carbohydrates in general was kind of tough, but I, I tell people they can modify the South Beach diet and eat healthy carbs during the initial two-week period. Um, one should eat a well-balanced diet. Obviously, fruits, vegetables, grains that I spoke about before, um, avoidance of butter, lard, um, choosing olive oil to cook with. Additionally, I, I don't think that, uh, I know that intermittent fasting works for some people, but I, again, I think three meals a day. Overall care, balance. Overall balance, yeah. care for portion sizes. A lot of people will, you know, go to a restaurant, have a massive entree served. Many people take home uh, the rest for, uh, for um, uh, you know, as an in-to-go bag. Um, but again, you know, they're having that same unhealthy meal that they had in the restaurant the next night as well. So people should really be focused, I think, at, with cooking at home um, and, and watching what they eat, specifically focusing on foods that are healthy for them. Okay, thank you. Um, I also wanted to ask you your opinion about um, exercising in general. Uh, we know that it's recommended to at least exercise 150 minutes a week, moderate intensity. What do you find works best with your patients? Right. So uh, that's a very good question. I generally recommend 150 minutes a week of moderate exercise divided among several days. I usually give people four to five days in which to do that. Um, interestingly, if someone's going to engage in strenuous exercise, then 75 minutes will suffice. Okay. Um, additionally, um, if someone's interested in losing weight, they need to increase the number of minutes exercise. So they would need to be between 200 and 300 um, minutes a week in, okay. order to, in order to achieve that weight loss goal. Um, with regard to moderate versus strenuous activity, there's a third uh, school of thought that involves HIIT, which is high interval, high intensity interval training. There's a um, fitness club out there, but <laughs> they focus on um, three stages of exercise. So there's a base, um, a push, and an all out. So okay. the and they're following the heart rate. And what's interesting is they post the heart rates of everyone in the group in the room, so that there could be a little competitiveness among the right, quote right. unquote athletes. <laughs> um, and what I like about that is, you know, in cardiology, as you know, we stress test people to 85% of their maximum predicted heart rate. So the zone that this fitness center wants to achieve is that 85% mark. So what they do is they have someone exercising between 75% and 85% of their maximum predicted heart rate. And if someone wants to calculate what their heart rate, goal heart rate is, it's simply 220 minus your age multiplied by the percentage heart rate that you want to achieve. So um, the base rate is generally between 75 and 85%. And then when, they, when the trainer in the room says push, the um, people exercising are expected to get their heart rate over 85%. 
And then, and that might be a 30 to 60 second interval. And then the all out phase is above 90%. Um, so, but th that is usually about 20 to 30 seconds max. So that's what's called high intensity interval training. And it could be used as an alternative to the moderate or strenuous exercise uh, program. What's good about HIIT is that someone who doesn't, who has limited time, either, you know, a mom at home with one to however many kids they have, um, or someone who's trying to balance work and um, household, uh, there's limited time. So uh, HIIT allows a person to get that exercise in um, while at the same time, you know, being able to tend to their other uh, chores and, um, and responsibilities. Something more about exercise is that the reason why exercise is so important is because when you think about weight training and, exer and exercising with dumbbells and barbells and machines, you're strengthening your skeletal muscles. When you, we talk about aerobic exercise, you're strengthening your heart muscle. The way that is done is because when you exercise, you're breathing harder, which uh, in turn increases your heart rate, and that requires your heart to extract more oxygen from the blood. And so your heart as a pump becomes more efficient in function, and then the other aspect is the um, of exercise, and the reason why it's so important is that exercise primes the the body as a whole to extract oxygen more efficiently. So generally, overall, there's a there's a healthy um, uh, outcome to exercise, and that's why it's so important. Um, there's a common myth uh, that used to be uh, spread about heart disease that if someone had heart disease, then they should take it easy. And that's actually the furthest from the truth because someone who has uh, documented heart disease or, or significant risk factors for heart disease, those are the folks that should really be out there exercising to the goals that we just described because by exercising, they're going to reduce their cardiovascular risk. That's actually something that I experience where a lot of patients come in and um, post them, I've had an intervention, and uh, they're really scared to get back into to exercising. So it's Good that you clarified that, that you should be exercising. The institution that I worked at in uh, New Hampshire, they, the focus was anyone who um, had a stent deployed or ended up with bypass surgery was immediately plugged into cardiac rehab, not immediately post-procedure, right. but within a certain number of weeks so that we, we didn't really give the patient the option to say yes <laughs> or no. We kind of just enrolled them. And then, you know, when they attended the first class, they could decide how it would be for them and then decide whether they wanted to pursue it or not. But it was like an automatic um, switch that yeah. was flicked that this person would be enrolled. And I think that's a great, it's a great program. Uh, it's a great program. program. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, what would you suggest for people who can't necessarily do HIIT exercises? Like, Maybe the older population, they can't do HIIT exercises. Walking, right, is the best that you I would think, say? I think walking is very yeah. good. Uh, also, um, um, exercises don't require a significant um, pounding of the joints on the surface. Water aerobics. Water aerobics, <laughs> certainly. Swimming is wonderful. Right. Swimming is wonderful. Also, um, Peloton bike um, or any other type of bike okay. training equipment, uh, rowing machine, Stepmaster, Stairmaster. It doesn't need to be uh, high-impact activity. Okay. Um, I also wanted to get into smoking and excessive alcohol consumption. That is one of the toughest topics that I have with my patients. Um, what are your tips to really implore patients to quit smoking? Right. So I usually use the tough love approach and I tell people that smoking is horrendous for them. Um, yes. And especially those that have a significant cardiovascular risk with hypertension, diabetes, sometimes both prior history of myocardial infarction, heart attack, 
um, another another name for heart attack. Um, so th- everyone needs to stop smoking. It's the worst thing that you could do uh, to yourself. Um, and the techniques that I use are um, typically nicotine patches and uh, uh, a medication that is called Zyban. Um, Another uh, medication, Chantix, was unfortunately discontinued in terms of production. It was taken off the market because there was some component of the drug that was determined to be potentially harmful. Um, My uh, research into this um, recently illustrated that um, a generic is going to be produced um, and probably available in 2024 or late 2023. Um, And uh, I think that was a useful adjunct to smoking cessation. Obviously, a lot of uh, healthcare providers, practitioners are a little skittish about resuming it. But I think once the FDA comes out um, about the generics that they are safe to use, I think there was a document that um, that stated that then there will be more comfort in terms of starting those agents up again. Because I think they were quite successful at assisting in smoking cessation. Um, the Another common myth is that uh, people believe that if they've smoked, then they're at risk and there's nothing that they can do about it. Uh, in fact, uh, the day that you quit, the risk of heart disease starts to decline. And 10 years after your quit date, you're at the same risk of developing heart disease as a non-smoker. So that's an important fact that needs to be sort of spread. Right. Um, never too late to quit. Never too late to quit. Now, with regard to alcohol, alcohol, there was a lot of news coming out years ago that moderate alcohol consumption was heart healthy. So I just wanted to clear up some issues about that. Um, So what does moderate alcohol consumption mean? So for um, women, it's one drink a day. And for men, it's two drinks a day. So what's a drink? A drink is typically four to five ounces of wine, 1.5 ounces of hard liquor, eight ounces of beer. But we'll get a fact check on that. (laughs) Um, That seems to me a lot, two drinks a day for a woman, especially, you know, you have a woman who's 110 pounds, I think two drinks a day, that's kind of excessive. Um, The hype about uh, alcohol being good for the heart came from a component in red wine called uh, Reservatrol. Uh, What's interesting about that is it's also found in grapes. So if you consume red grapes with the skin or even grape juice, you may get the same benefit. The other thing I'd like to point out is that alcohol uh, causes weight gain and it also causes elevated blood pressure. So uh, we have to be careful with, with alcohol. I would not advise patients to drink a glass of wine a day to promote their heart health. If they're already having alcohol, I would advise them to limit it to one a day. I generally tell people, you know, try to limit your alcohol to three times a week. Yeah, maybe the weekend. Perfect, yes. And, uh, and then certainly just one drink. And, and if they're going to have an alcoholic beverage, it should be red wine. Okay, okay. What's the connection between sleep and heart health? In the last 20 years, I would say there's been an explosion in the diagnosis of sleep apnea. And the reason for that is that um, the researchers have realized that one in five patients, uh, men and women equally affected, have sleep apnea. And sleep centers have sprung up all over the country. Um, I personally had sleep apnea. And, uh, you know, I weigh 178 at 6'1". Oh. Um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's you unbelievable. So. You wouldn't think so. Exactly. So, you know... Sleep apnea stems from the anatomy in the soft palate. And what happens is some of us in the population have um, redundant soft tissue in the soft palate. So when we lie down and sleep, mm-hmm. the airway becomes closed. And so there's, we stop breathing, and, which isn't good. And uh, there's a buildup of carbon dioxide. So the brain says, hey, there's carbon dioxide buildup. You better wake up. So the result of sleep apnea is 
um, recurrent low oxygen levels, we call that hypoxemia, mm-hmm. compounded with a brain that's waking an individual up and making sleep interrupted. So the treatment for sleep apnea in general is continuous positive airway pressure, otherwise known as CPAP. And when a patient's diagnosed with significant uh, sleep apnea, then they get prescribed a CPAP machine. So when I was diagnosed, I was 41 years old, and I said, no way am I going to wear a CPAP for the rest of my life. So I consulted with an ear, nose, and throat specialist who told me that I would be a good candidate for a procedure called a U-triple-P, which is a surgical procedure similar to a tonsillectomy, where they go in and they remove the redundant soft tissue from the palate. Um, And I had the surgery, and it was curative. So I had a subsequent sleep uh, study after the surgery, and I no longer had sleep apnea. So that was wonderful news. I'm not saying that everyone should get this surgery, but certainly someone who has been prescribed CPAP should look at other options if they're not interested in wearing the CPAP. I have many patients, um, I would say tens to hundreds of patients who were diagnosed with sleep apnea, wear CPAP, are compliant and doing very well. So getting back to your question about how important sleep is for um, your cardiovascular health, it's extremely important because if you're not sleeping well, then your stress levels are up. And the recent data is that stress is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So we all know about the standard and well-known risk factors, hypertension, diabetes, family history of heart disease, smoking, and um, dyslipidemia or high cholesterol. They've just recently added a number of other features over the last several years, central obesity, Mm -hmm. um, inactivity is a risk factor. Remarkably, um, I read recently that um, a woman who has preeclampsia or gestational diabetes will have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Also, early menopause puts a woman at risk for earlier cardiovascular disease than uh, her cohorts. Um, Getting back to sleep, how much sleep is important? Um, The recommendation is that individuals over the age of 18 should have at least seven hours of sleep. And that's very important because most of the people I know have less than that. Right. Um, I agree. Exactly. It's very important that people stick to that more than I would say seven to eight hours should be the target. So don't stay up late at night, you know, on Facebook or watching the news. Get off your phone. Right. (laughs) Read a nice book and go to sleep. Exactly. Um, And the reason I brought up the the sleep uh, apnea before is because people who have undiagnosed sleep apnea are not going to have good sleep. Their stress levels are going to be up. They will, it'll contribute to them developing high blood pressure and another condition called high blood pressure in the lungs or pulmonary hypertension. So it's very important that if someone suspects that they have sleep apnea, that they, um, that they get evaluated. And um, what should people look out for, your patients look out for, if they think they might have sleep apnea? Yeah. So um, a lot of people don't know that they have sleep apnea. So I often ask the spouse if they're in the room. Uh, or the significant other, you know, does your significant other, your partner, snore? And if the answer is yes, <laughs> then you know, not all people that snore have sleep apnea, and not right. all people that don't snore don't have sleep apnea. So certainly something that should be looked at if it's suspected. Obviously, people that are overweight, there's going to be an increased risk. It simply takes a healthcare provider, be it a family practice person, internal medicine, cardiovascular um, provider, to look in a person's throat and see if they have that redundant soft tissue. Because if, you know, if you tell someone to open their mouth and say, ah, and there's very little... Uh, room there for the air to go through, then this is Likely. someone that should be suspected of right. having sleep apnea. Moms out there, they don't get good sleep. Um, people who work night shifts, people who are bus drivers, truck drivers, they don't get good sleep. What are your recommendations for them in terms of how can they get sleep, uh, get a, the right amount of sleep, and um, how can they get better sleep habits? <laughs> 
So that's an excellent question. Um, the I, and I took care of some of those patients who were truck drivers and and or worked GE because GE is working around the clock, twenty four hours. They have their night shift and their day shift and so forth. Healthier sleep is uh, you know we're nocturnal. Uh, we're not nocturnal. We're uh, the opposite of nocturnal creatures. Uh, so our best sleep is at night. Um, I think you know ten p.m. to six a.m. or some slight variation of that goal. For people who come home from work at 8 in the morning and then have to go to sleep at 9 and then go back to work at 7 or 8 p.m., they should just do their best to get seven hours of sleep. And the quality of sleep is very important. So even though it's not nighttime, um, they, they could, if they could simulate nighttime, you know, blackout curtains, silent environment, um, then, then I think their quality of sleep would be, would be good. Let me just interject there. I used to be a night shift nurse, and I worked night shift for four to five years. Wow. And while I was working it, I didn't think it was doing anything to me. I felt like, oh, I'm young. I could do this. It was fine. I would get home. I would work from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., get home, try not to eat, would probably eat something, <laughs> then go to sleep around 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. I would put blackout curtains, a noise machine. I'd try to just stimulate what I would do on a normal day and try to get the best sleep. But quality of sleep was definitely an issue for me. I would wake up, you know, you'd hear the lawnmower outside or someone's knocking on the door or someone's there trying to sell you something. So it was never that great of a sleep until I finally stopped night shift work, you know, had a normal regular schedule working as a nurse practitioner. And I couldn't believe how good I felt. And you don't, you don't know it while you're working in night shift or doing those jobs because it feels routine for you. But after I'm telling you, it's, it's life-changing the uh, getting sleep. You think clearer, you feel better. Everything overall just gets better. Yeah. Well, thank so. <laughs> goodness. Thank goodness there are individuals who do the night shifts. Right. Like yourself, absolutely. Absolutely. And the truck drivers. We appreciate you. We know how hard yes, it I is. Yes, I don't regret it. But yeah. <laughs> um, one of the reasons I didn't go into emergency medicine is because, you know, there was either the 7A to 7P or the right. 7P to 7A. And as medical residents, you know, before cardiology fellowship, we do a medical residency. And as part of that, we need to do a month a year in the emergency department. It was at that time that I felt like that um, working at night, sleeping during the day was was just very difficult. And once again, I appreciate people who do that. Right. Absolutely. Um, but, the, but the sleep hygiene um, uh, uh, fact is, is important to convey to all of the listeners and viewers out there. Um, avoid doing things at night before you go to bed that stimulate you. So don't read a newspaper that's going to make you upset about the news that you're reading. Don't watch a television show that's a murder mystery or, you know, an action thriller like uh, Tom Clancy's um, uh, action hero. My wife and I used to be addicted to action TV late at night and we realized it was really taking its toll on our sleep. So now we stick to, you know, rom-coms and, you know, informational, you know, National Geographic. We saw a nice show about wolves recently that was very soothing and heartwarming. Um, yeah, so sleep hygiene, definitely avoid things, stressors at night before you go, go to sleep. Avoid blue light. Looking at your phone or watching, you know, I just mentioned that we, we still watch TV, but looking at your phone and sort of flipping through um, apps and so forth, not healthy for a good sleep hygiene. Um, people say you should, um, you should really stick to um, doing two things in your bedroom, intimal relations and sleep. 
Not necessarily in that order, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, your your bedroom should not be your gym. I know uh, here in uh, South Florida, you know, some homes are smaller. In Manhattan, people have small apartments, um, and there's no place to put your exercise equipment. But a good idea just to have a, a nice, clean sleep environment when 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 it's time to go to bed. Um, in regards to sleep aids, are there? How do you feel about sleep aids, like melatonin or? ZZ Quill, right. nighttime tea. <laughs> yeah. So some people, unfortunately, have severe insomnia and they require sleep aids. Um, I would say that, uh, and I don't manage sleep. I, I leave that to the, the primary care physicians and, and uh, nurse practitioners and you know, the, just the primary health care providers. I think that short-term use of those agents may be useful to sleep train somebody, but long-term is probably Habit. not so good. Yeah. I mean, I could tell you that I used to take Ambien on transatlantic flights um, so that I could sleep on the plane and then be more refreshed. And it never failed. I always felt lousy on arrival. I had some transient amnesia about what actually transpired in the airport <laughs> prior to my flight. Some people swear by melatonin. I've never tried it. Uh, but again, uh, if you need help to go to sleep, because sleep is important, right. then use it. Um, but it should be something that's prescribed to you by someone who's got a lot of experience with it. What would you say happens if someone does not get the recommended seven hours of sleep? Yeah, so sleep is so important in terms of its prevention of cardiovascular uh, disease because when someone isn't sleeping enough, when the body is not resting as it should, uh, there's what's called a high adrenaline state, and there's also a contribution to inflammation. Recently, researchers have noticed that one of the contributors to cardiovascular disease is inflammation in the blood vessels. And when the body is under stress, meaning it's not resting appropriately, mm -hmm. there's going to be high inflammation states, and there's also going to be um, high adrenaline states. We learn in elementary school about the fight or flight response. It's good to have adrenaline surges when you need it, but you shouldn't have adrenaline surges all the time. And if you're not getting a good night's rest, you're going to have high adrenaline states during the day. And that's in turn going to contribute to elevated blood pressure during the day. So uh, I can't... Um, I can't stress enough the importance of sleep. The other thing I wanted to add is when I said seven hours at least for the 18 and over population, um, two things. Number one, if you're sleep deprived, so if you're a mom taking care of a newborn or a dad taking care of a newborn, um, or you had a business trip and a lot of meetings and you for three or four days you had four to five hours of sleep, you need to actually sleep more in terms of catching up because your body hasn't rested significantly over those three or four days and you need to catch up and let your body rest. So I would say even nine hours, you know, I always feel good if I, you know, have stress and for two nights in a row, I slept six hours or less. If I have a nine hour night's sleep, I feel much better and refreshed. Absolutely. So you do recommend that people actually, uh, so to speak, catch up on their sleep. Correct. I right. do. And then uh, the other thing I wanted to add is because we take care of a lot of patients that are over 65, some in their eighties and nineties. Um, Folks who are at, at advanced age have less steady sleep. And it's completely reasonable for people that are older who aren't getting good sleep. They're either having significant insomnia or they're waking up frequently during the night to go to the bathroom or otherwise. Right. It's totally reasonable for them to take an afternoon nap, and I encourage it. Okay. Thank you for that. Sure. What is the role of regular checkups? Because I know that a lot of people ask, um, how often should I see the doctor when should I start seeing the doctor? At what age should I bring my teen to see the doctor? And what should I ask for? So what's your opinion on that? Right. So um, up until the age of 18, we get taken to the doctor by our parents. Right. And I think uh, an annual visit is reasonable. 
I know that uh, in Florida, there's a requirement for the schools to have a pediatrician sign off on, on a child before they're able to go to school, which I think is a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in adulthood, I think it's reasonable for uh, people to see their physician every one to two years. If they have significant medical problems, obviously sooner than that. The question comes up, when do I see a cardiologist or when do I need to see a cardiovascular specialist? Um, And the answer to that is, if there's a significant family history of heart disease in the family, Mm -hmm. namely a parent, two parents, uncles, aunts, grandparents, then the recommendation, um, you know, there's this art of medicine, which is, you know, there's the guidelines and then there's the specific individual philosophy of a practitioner. My general feeling is that if you have a significant family history of early coronary disease, even if you're asymptomatic, you should probably be seen by a heart specialist in your 40s, okay? They're recommending uh, colonoscopies now for age 45 and up. Mm -hmm. I think totally reasonable family history of heart disease, even without um, other risk factors and without symptoms, I think it's, it's reasonable to see a cardiologist when someone's in their 40s. Can you go into what exactly the family history you're speaking of? Right. So when I say family history of heart disease, I mean uh, a family history of a heart event. So if um, a member of the family had a heart attack at a young age, and by that I mean uh, 30 and up, generally we see 40 and up. Occasionally we see 30 and up, especially in those patients that have very high cholesterol. But um, getting back to the point, um, a family member who had a heart event, namely a heart attack, Uh, or failed a stress test because they were discovered to have coronary disease and ended up with a stent in one of their coronary arteries uh, or bypass surgery. Mm -hmm. Uh, Additional risk factors is an early family history of stroke. Um, That should also be taken seriously with regard to assessing someone's overall cardiovascular risk. What is one of the most common misconceptions or myths that you hear with your patients? Yeah, so I'll name a few. Um, one was um, that uh, high blood pressure is uh, completely normal if you're older. So in other <laughs> words, uh, it's, it's reasonable for blood pressure to increase with age. Um, so just to get to the latest guidelines, it used to be that 140 over 90 was the cutoff for everyone. Um, but then several years ago, they came up with the uh, term prehypertension. So stage one hypertension was a top number of blood pressure of 140 over a bottom number of blood pressure of 90, and then a top number of blood pressure over 160 over a bottom blood pressure number of 100 was called stage two hypertension. And the term prehypertension applies to a blood pressure between 130 and 139 over 80, 81 to 89. And people who had what were what was called prehypertension were then advised to modify their diet and their lifestyle to address this so that they don't graduate into stage one hypertension. Right. So the common goals right now is um, a blood pressure of under 130 over 80, but not below 120 over 70. Okay. So essentially 120, 130 over 70 to 80 would be where we want people to be. Um, If someone uh, is over the age of 80, however, the old bar remains in terms of the 140 over 90 because we don't want uh, the blood pressure to be too low that the patient becomes symptomatic and right. God forbid have a fainting spell right. and fall or fall because they're significantly lightheaded. So whereas we know that blood pressure increases with age, um, we still want to manage it. And by controlling blood pressure in the elderly, we are going to reduce cardiovascular uh, events, including a heart attack and stroke. Okay. What about patients that say, oh, now that I'm on medications for diabetes and cholesterol, I can eat whatever I want. (laughs) Right. I've heard that. That's a good one. So the people that say that they need to understand that when you take a statin 
uh, like uh, Lipitor or Crestor, to name a few, um, that medication acts at the level of the liver. So the reason cholesterol is high in the body is because either the liver's making it or the patient's consuming it. So if you take a statin medication, you're only hitting the cholesterol buildup from the um, production in the liver. So if you consume red meat every day, even though you're on Lipitor, you're still going to have high cholesterol and you're defeating the purpose of being on the statin uh, from the get-go. Right. I actually want to get into statins a bit because I do have a lot of patients that come in um, telling me that they don't want to take their statin because they read an article online that it causes memory loss and dementia, um, that they've, they've just read a lot of research out there regarding statins that generally just say it's not good. So what are your thoughts on, on that? Because, you know, as cardiologists, we love statins. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, well, th- there isn't, uh, there may be an association with memory affected, but I don't think there's enough data to uh, suggest a clear correlation. And when we take, me- you know, all medications are potentially poisons. So, uh, and, and when I say poison, I don't mean with fatalities. I'm talking about with significant adverse side effects. So we, what we try to do as good healthcare providers is to give a patient a medication that we think they need and we think that would be of use to them, but also taking into account the patient's reaction to taking that medication. So if they have an adverse side effect, be it a little one that they can't tolerate or a big one, which obviously we stop the medication, we work with the patients to get them on a regimen that will help them, but not at, but at the same time not cause them undue discomfort or, right. or side effects. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, if someone's d- dead set against taking their statin, what I might do in that situation if their cholesterol numbers are not at goal um, I'll do a CAT scan with uh, with calcium scoring and show them, here's your calcium score. It's 500. Yeah, we You're need to take risk. it seriously. We need to take it seriously, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Okay. okay. Oh, and then just getting back to the uh, the diabetes medication, the right. folks that take the diabetes medication and think that they can, that think that they're, that they're going to be protected against right. cardiovascular disease. What people need to understand is that um, taking diabetes medication, be it tablets or insulin, reduces the risk of microvascular disease. Okay, but there's still macrovascular disease that could occur in patients with diabetes, even with controlled A1Cs. The A1C is that marker. It gives us a, um, a view of three months of um, glucose management or sugar right. control. Patients who are taking medication are still at risk for large blood vessel disease, okay, and subsequently at risk for heart disease. So they are the ones who need more aggressive blood pressure lowering. If they're smoking, they need to quit smoking. Right. If they're um, not leading an active lifestyle, they need to be exercising 150 minutes a week right. of, of a moderate exercise or 75 of, of, um, of strenuous exercise. So the folks that, if you have a diagnosis of diabetes, your risk of heart disease is elevated. And in, as such, you need to be doing things to modify your lifestyle and, and your diet to lead a more heart-healthy life. Right, everything that we've talked about today. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So thank you so much, Dr. Greenblatt. Uh, for all your information today. And thank you so much for listening, everyone out there. Um, My name is Celine. Again, I work primarily with my cardiologist in the South Miami location. Uh, Dr. Greenblatt, do you want to? Yeah, I'm at Miami Beach in the mid-beach section of Miami Beach. And I also have an office in Aventura near the Aventura Mall. Okay, so if um, any of you have any more concerns about what we've talked about today, please click on the link below um, to get directed straight to our My Cardiologist page. And you can see all our locations that we offer and all of the physicians that work for us, as well as nurse practitioners and, and PAs. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. And make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. To learn more about My Cardiologist, please visit us at mycardiologist.com.